Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. I'm going to jump right into it. Today I'm speaking with Adam Grant. Adam is an organizational psychologist who teaches at the Wharton Business School, where he has been the top-ranked professor for seven straight years. He is a leading expert on bringing social science into the workplace, and he's the author of four New York Times bestselling books, including Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. He also hosts the Work Life podcast in association with TED, and he's a repeated TED speaker. Anyway, the list of his academic distinctions is long, and we get into some of his core interests. In this episode, we talk about how teams work effectively. We talk about the nature of power, personality types, and what Adam has described as the fundamental styles of interaction, giving, taking, and matching. Uh, We talk about the critical skill of saying no, creativity, resilience. We cover the strange case of Jonas Salk, which is surprising. And then I browbeat Adam for, I don't know, a good long time about mindfulness, and he proves a very good sport. Anyway, I found it a very useful conversation, and I hope you do as well. And now I bring you Adam Grant. I am here with Adam Grant. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. There's a lot to talk about. I have been getting deep into your material. Before we talk about any of your books and other areas of interest, how do you summarize your career? And and I guess the one setup point I would make is that you are a much celebrated academic, but you, you actually have a kind of more obviously entrepreneurial and sort of breaking of the mold approach to your career at this point. I mean, you, you consult with a lot of companies, you, you're visible in a way that many academics aren't. And so I'm just wondering how you think about your career and how you got into your pile of interests. So I, I fell in love with psychology when I was an undergrad and was just fascinated by the idea that you could take the tools of science and apply them to human behavior. And I knew, I knew I was interested in it. I had no idea where I wanted to take it. And um, my freshman year of college, I was in the middle of a bunch of psych classes and I ended up taking an advertising sales job. And I was horrible at it. I had, I think, a group of clients who had a 95% renewal rate. Mm-hmm. And I called up a bunch of them my first week and uh, I had zero contracts. They all turned out. <laughs> uh, and three people demanding their money back from the uh, previous year. Right. <laughs> so it, was, it was really bad. And um, I'd read uh, Robert Cialdini's book on uh, persuasion for one of my psych classes. And I immediately started applying some of the principles and I got better at the job. And I started to to see all the ways that psychology was useful at work. And then the next year I got promoted into this manager role where I had to to hire a team and I had to motivate them. And I had a a seven figure budget as a 19 year old. And uh, I just, I found myself using everything I was learning in psychology to, to try to get better at work. And I think eventually what clicked for me is that <clears throat> there's so much good insight in, in the social sciences that's just not useful in the world. And I feel like most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work, and yet so many people don't find what they do in their jobs meaningful or motivating. And I wanted to fix that. And so I guess I deliberately chose an applied field where, you know, instead of being discouraged from, from doing work that, that was useful to people, I would actually be encouraged to do that. So here we are. Right, right. And so your, your PhD is in organizational psychology? Guilty, or, yes. Yeah, okay. Does that overlap at all with operations research or are they, are these different? Very people? little. There are a few okay. people who bridge the two. Uh-huh. Um, but 
I did. So I did my PhD in a psych department and a bunch of my classes were in a business school sort of studying management. But most of my training was kind of like think about it as social and personality psychology applied to work where we take your job and the organizational culture that surrounds you really seriously. So what do we know about work and career and power and influence? I mean, obviously, this is a very big question, but I want to go into this area. What do we know based on the social science that is most actionable, most important to know, and is therefore most useful in people's lives? Where do you want to start? Let's start with this. Let's start with a noun like a person's career or work. What advice do you have? What do you think you know as a result of being a specialist in this area that the average person might not know? That's, that's funny. That's the question my students ask all the time, oh, yeah? and I never know how to answer it. But I think I, I think I have something based on years of trial and error on that. So I think when most people choose jobs, they choose based on the nature of the work, and they choose based on the status of the organization, you know, holding constant factors like pay, for example. Right. And I think there's a, there's a big misfactor there, which is culture. We know we have decades of evidence that the culture of the organization that you join has as much impact on your happiness, your success, and even your career trajectory as the actual work itself or, you know, as, you know, characteristics of the job that you take. And yet we don't know, we don't know how to consider that because culture is messy, right? It's hard to measure. It's hard to recognize. Sometimes we get conflicting cues. And so what, I guess what I, would, what I would suggest is for anybody who's looking for practical advice on how to Basically, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to interview a company. Mm -hmm. Once they give you the job, right, you have to say, is this a place where I can be successful and where I can flourish? And if you ask about what the culture is like, you get a bunch of platitudes back. People will say things like, oh, we value integrity and excellence. Well, every other company claims that too, right? I think where you really learn about a culture is you ask people to tell a story about something that happened in their workplace that would not happen anywhere else. And if you ask a bunch of people in the same organization that question, you can start to recognize patterns in the stories. Mm-hmm. So there's a classic study on this where, you know, everybody thinks their own organization is unique, but then you hear the same roughly seven stories over and over again. So people will tell stories about how the little person can get to the top or not, right? Or about how the big boss is human or about, will I get fired if I make a mistake? And if you break down all these stories, what you see is that fundamentally they're about, is this organization a safe place to work? Is it a fair place to work? And can I make a dent around here? Can I have an impact or an influence? And those are the, those are the things people really care about in a culture. And so I think that anybody who's choosing a job ought to be asking those questions, gathering the stories and, and trying to get to the bottom of, okay, what, what does this place mean in terms of safety, justice, and control and impact? Right. Now, what would you say to someone who's running a distributed team? Because in tech, there are many companies, I mean, like, so I, I now have a team for the first time in my life, and they're virtually all long distance. And so there's not the same kind of cohesive culture because no one's showing up to an office. And there are huge companies like this. I remember talking to Matt Mullenweg, who, who started WordPress. WordPress. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's got something like 11 people in an office and, you know, a thousand times that distributed. What's, is, is that just a, a filter that will select for people who don't need all of the trappings of culture? Or how do we think about that? It might be. I think that, though, a lot of people find substitutes for culture. So, you know, if your organization is distributed and you don't feel like, you know, you have clear values or norms or a sense of community because you don't interact with those people very often, you tend to find it then instead in your profession, right? Mm-hmm. So in tech, you find that, you know, groups of engineers tend to spend a lot of time together, even if they work at different organizations even if they're not in a co-working space, right? What they're trying to do often is say, hey, 
we want to build a culture around our profession where we have, you know, a set of beliefs that are important to us and a set of practices that we try to stick to and then maybe improve over time. And I think if, if that's the world you live in, I think most people want to feel like they're part of an organization where they can make a bigger contribution than if they were just working solo. Right. And I see culture as mostly a force that reduces friction in, in doing that, right? Because so much of the collaboration and coordination we do causes us, when we work with other people, to become less than the sum of our parts. And I feel like part of what we're, we're trying to do in building an organizational culture is to say, okay, how do we, uh, we get people on the same page in terms of what their mission, their values are, their ways of working together? And hopefully we can do that in such a way that then when we work together, we actually accomplish things together that we couldn't solo. And so I guess I'd say concretely, if you're working in a distributed team, one of my favorite new practices is to write a user manual for how mm -hmm. to work with you effectively. Have you ever done this, Sam? No, no. I learned about this actually. Um, I think my wife should write that manual. Well, that, this is actually one of the key insights, right? Is, is you want people who know you well to write the manual for right, you. Right. But it's, it's stunning to me that when you buy a computer or a car, there's a manual for how to operate it. But the other people you work with who are way more complex than any piece of technology or machinery, there's no user manual for how to work with them. So um, there's a, a group of managers at Bain, uh, the consulting firm, who, who did this really well. They said, all right, I'm going to go to all my teams that I've worked with for a long time, and I'm going to have them write the one pager for what brings out the best in me, what brings out the worst in me, what would you want to know if today were day one of working with me, and what are my blind spots? Mm. And then we're, we're going to collect all those, we're going to create one document around it, and then I'm just going to share it with anybody who works with me in the future. Wow. And I think it's such an easy way to try to make you know, sort of, I guess, a collaboration a little bit more predictable and also not push each other's buttons. Interesting. Is there more that we know about the variables that conspire to make collaboration more than the sum of the parts rather than less than the sum of the parts? Yeah, I, I think we know less than we should. I think the first, I mean, the, the starting point for me is that a lot of collaboration shouldn't exist in the first place. Mm. So one of, my, uh, one of my first mentors was Richard Hackman, who spent a half century studying teams. And he did it because he hated working with other people. And he chose this career where he wanted to figure out how, how does anybody ever work together and actually, you know, not only do it well, but sort of enjoy it. And um, he, he had a fun philosophy for what an organizational psychologist does, which is you take all the jobs that you wish you had, had pursued and you get to live them vicariously by studying them. And so he wanted to, uh, to be a spy. And so he went and studied U.S. intelligence agencies and how to improve their effectiveness. Mm. He was interested in being um, a musician at one point. So he studied symphony orchestras and how to increase the quality of music they played. He loved flying, and so he studied airline cockpit crews. And so he was, he was constantly looking across these different worlds to figure out what made a team great. And one of his most basic findings was that for the most part, teams fail when you give them tasks that are better done by individuals. Like, for example, mm -hmm. writing a book. Really bad idea to have multiple people write a book together. Right. Um, especially more than two, especially if they don't share a voice, and there's not kind of one consistent narrator, right? And I think that, that the first question to ask is, is this a task that really requires interdependent collaboration? Or is it a task that's better done by individual people working separately? Yeah, that, that rings a few bells. So what about power? Again, we're just leaping from noun to noun. You now consult with a lot of powerful people. H how do you think about power in the year 2019? Well, I guess, you know, what, what I was taught growing up is that power corrupts. 
I remember in middle school <laughs> looking at the the you know the poster on the wall and it was the the Lord Acton quote that said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. They had that up in your school? Yeah, in my middle school classroom. Huh. And I had That's the same teacher for three years, so I stared at it for three years. And I don't know if I was skeptical of it then, but there was something about it that didn't sit right with me. I think what it, what I found really bothersome about it was that it gave it gave individuals no agency. You know, it was like, okay, if 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 a good person becomes powerful, you know, all hope is lost. And that that just didn't ring true to me, I guess, intuitively. And, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, we now have a growing body of evidence in psychology that yes, power can corrupt, but I think more often it reveals. So, right. you know, one of one of the things we see pretty consistently is that the way people use power depends on their pre-existing values. And, you know, I, I, I think there are lots of good examples of this. You know, we've, we've controlled experiments that show it, but the, the pattern looks a lot like, I think, of two lawyers uh, who got into public office. And one of them was, was threatened to be disbarred in the first case he ever tried. And the judge said, I doubt that you have the ethical qualifications to practice law. And that lawyer's name was Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. uh, right? right? It's not so clear that power corrupted him. I think he was corrupt to begin with. And then he ended up using power in a corrupt way once he, he gained the highest office in America. There's another lawyer who was so ethical that he ended up refusing a client because he said, I believe you're guilty. And therefore, I cannot defend someone that, you know, mm -hmm. that I, I don't believe is innocent. And that lawyer also became president. His name was Abraham Lincoln, right? right. And I think that, you know, to me, the, the arc of what we've learned in psychology is, is very often, you know, it's, it's not that power necessarily corrupts people, although it can be a powerful force, right? It, it can be hard to resist some of the temptations of power. The intoxication, as Nietzsche described it, right? Hmm. But I think that more often, people end up morphing power to serve their own ends. And that it's not so much that power corrupts people, it's that people corrupt power. Yeah, you sort of find out what people really want when they have more tools with which to get it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And also, um, one of the consistent findings in psychology is that when you give people power, they become disinhibited. Because mm -hmm. they think, look, I've, you know, I've, I've gained now the freedom to express who I am and what I want, I don't, I don't have to put on an act anymore. Mm. And so, you know, Caro, after, uh, after doing his, his deep biography of, of Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, that's on uh, my desk. I want to read that. It's, he, he, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a great read. It's, it's a, a long read. It's a major commitment. Yeah, uh, yeah you, you, like you, don't, you don't go into pages. that lightly. Yeah. <laughs> but one of his observations was that the power never corrupts. It always reveals. And I think that, that is one of the things that, you know, I, I don't think one is true and the other is not. But I think that's, a, for me, a fundamental shift about power. Let's, let's give people a little bit of credit, right? Let's say, look, you know, it's possible that if you are a person of decent character and integrity, that, you know, power could bring out the better, better angels of your nature, as, as Lincoln put it. Mm. Yeah, one thing that, again, this, this could be a bit of a caricature, but I feel like I've discovered this in my, in my wanderings among powerful people, that it's not just power. I guess it, it, fame might be a more relevant variable, but at a certain point in a person's career, as they get more powerful and more famous, they seem to surround themselves with people who insulate them from the normal tests of truth. And I mean, just there's, like a, there's less re reality testing going on. And so you, you can meet people who you get the sense have never heard a strong argument against their cherished ideas. Yeah. And it, it, it can be a bit surprising. They're just surrounded by yes men and women. And they have been told they're geniuses so often that I'm thinking of one case in particular, I, I won't name him, but it's just, 
you get there is a kind of delusion where you've been drinking your own publicity for long enough that you're out of touch with reality. I've seen that happen more times than I'd like to admit. And, you know, I think to me, it, it suggests poor judgment on the part of a leader, mm. right? That you ought to know that one of the dangers of gaining power is that, yeah, I've, I'm sure you've heard leaders <laughs> remark at some point in their career, like, huh, it's so interesting. As I gained status, I suddenly got funnier. Yeah. Right, <laughs> well, right, like, yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. And you have to see that going in. You know that your judgment of, of other people's character actually gets worse as you become more powerful because they are more motivated to impress you and to flatter you. And if you recognize that, then you set up systems to counteract that. So yeah, I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they gain power and they say, I need a support network because I know my success depends on being able to multiply all my talents. And so I need a whole group of people around me who are going to extend my work, who are going to strengthen it, who are going to reinforce it. And I think what they overlook is they also need a challenge network, right? Mm -hmm. A group of people who believe in their potential enough that they want to tear their work apart to try to make it better. And, you know, it's, it's definitely scary when <laughs> I, I, uh, I've seen a couple of leaders who, you know, occasionally would walk into their, their office and they say good morning. And you could almost hear the people wanting to say in response, great point. Right. Like, yeah. Nope, nope. Too soon. Yeah. Too soon. There wasn't actually anything said yet. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I think that's, that's how most group think starts. Okay. So let's get into give and take because we, we've, well, we've almost uh, landed on it already. Summarize your, your thesis there and, and the, the different personality types, or would you call them personality types? Or they're just, it's, it's, and I'll let you explain it. But the differences in people and their styles here are orthogonal to like the big five personality traits, right? Yeah, so they let, seem let, to be. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So there's actually, there's really interesting. So, you know, we think about the big five as the, the major dimensions of personality, right? So, you know, how extroverted versus introverted are you? Where do you stand on emotional stability versus how reactive are you to stressful events? How conscientious and dependable are you? How agreeable, disagreeable are you? Which I want to talk more about, mm. uh, maybe my favorite big five trait. And then how open versus traditional are you in your thinking? And there's been, um, we see these traits exist in most cultures around the world. That leads us to think they're pretty fundamental, right? Um, and there's even pretty good biogenetic evidence that, you know, that we can trace to, hey, there's a, there's a heritability coefficient that's attached to each of these. And, you know, these, these traits, they, they exist in us, they matter, they're kind of hard to change. But we thought for a long time there were just kind of five, right? And then most of the, the additional traits that were discovered, we could kind of fit under the umbrella of an existing trait. And recently there's, um, there's growing evidence that there may be a sixth factor of personality, which is selfishness. Mm -hmm. And I found this really exciting because for the past 15 years, I've been studying individual differences in your motivation to help others versus advance your own interests. And so, you know, not surprising to me that that's emerging, but I don't think about these as personality types in part because what I'm really interested in here is, is your values. When you interact with another person, what are your goals and intentions? And I was struck by evidence from around the world. This has been shown in North America, Southeast Asia. Western Europe, but also um, in some pretty remote places like the African Maasai, that there are three fundamental styles of interaction that, that you see emerge again and again. And so on the extremes, I've, I've come to call them givers and takers. So the givers are the people who are always asking, you know, what could I do for you? Takers are the opposite, right? It's all about what can you do for me? And most of us, we don't want to be too selfish or too generous. And so when we meet somebody new, we choose a third style as our default, which is called matching. Right. If I'm a matcher, I say, hey, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And I think of these as styles rather than, than personality traits, because I think these are choices we make in every interaction. 
So, you know, I might be a giver when I'm mentoring a junior person. I might be more of a taker when I'm negotiating my salary with my employer, uh, where, you know, my goal is definitely not to, to make sure that they win that negotiation, mm -hmm. right? And then I might be a matcher if somebody who's maybe a rival of mine or a competitor asks me to share some information and say, hey, wait a minute, quid pro quo. And yet, I think we also all have a, a dominant style. And that's what, what I've been finding in, in my studies over the years is that there's a way that we prefer to treat most of the people most of the time. Mm. And I think that style has real consequences. Yeah. So in reading the book, I'm sure this is the universal experience of people who read it. But the first thing the reader does is try to figure out which style he or she owns. And I'm sure there's some self-deception at play in, in the conclusions people draw there. But honestly, I think I, I tend to be a giver in most respects, but I'm a kind of battered giver and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very busy giver, right? So I noticed, yeah. I noticed that a few things are happening now. One is there are some salient cases where I feel like I've been taken advantage of yeah. and it's sort of mattered. So now I'm more on guard in certain situations. I, I view my past self as a naive giver, right? Yeah. So as a kind of a mark. And I have to some degree outsourced my disagreeableness and my disposition not to give reflexively to, you know, a manager, a lawyer. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's yeah. a layer between me and reality and all the takers of the world. And that, to some degree, I'm sure many people experience this, it can be a kind of good cop, bad cop relationship where you get to kind of maintain your dominant style because you have an asshole who, who's working for you, right? <laughs> I hope they're not an asshole, by the way. I hope they're just a, a matcher who believes yes. deeply in justice right. and is trying to punish all the takers. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that, that is, I think that is the, the right recipe. And I guess as, as one of the piece here, I, I, I noticed this, I noticed the liability of being a giver. At least I, this is what I imagined had happened here. I met a guy who kind of was offering his services to collaborate with me on, on the meditation app that I, I recently released. And he was clearly somebody who, at least to hear him describe himself, was a huge giver, had been a huge giver, but felt just mightily burned by his previous encounters with people where he had essentially been instrumental in building a billion-dollar company and was uncompensated for it. So he's like giving, wow. he's giving good ideas to people and, you know, was just unremunerated, apparently. And so, but so his now, his, his style of approach to me was like out of an SNL sketch in terms of its defensiveness. I mean, it was like he basically black-boxed every piece of advice he could have given me. Like there was nothing, he, he deliberately wouldn't add value to yep. anything in a conversation because he didn't, he wanted, to, he wanted to monetize everything. The thing was so transactional that it was like a comedy sketch. And I, you know, I got off the phone with this guy and, and there was just, it would have been so exhausting to figure out how to work with him. And yet I can see, having had a few collisions of this sort, I can see how people could get there where they where you just feel like you're sort of open to the point where you're a really bad match for the people you happen to be around because yeah. you they just they, they take everything they take all the credit or they take all the opportunities and then some bear trap shuts within you and you have a different style there and then in that mode it seems clearly toxic and and unpragmatic yeah i think you know it's it's really interesting to ask the question of how do people become takers and, you know, I think some of that, obviously, there are sociopaths out there who mm. just don't care about other people. But I think more commonly, at least when I've, when I've studied this, you, you do see that there's a whole subset of takers who have just been taken advantage of one too many times, who used to be givers. 
And, you know, they kind of got burned and said, all right, I, I got to put myself first or else nobody else will. And I, I think there, there's actually a name for, um, for, for that kind of um, almost overcorrection, right? Mm-hmm. From, you know, somebody who was too self-sacrificing, too selfless to now being maybe too selfish and transactional. There's a psychologist, George Kelly, who called it slot rattling. And it's the, it's the idea of, okay, there's a, there's a particular trait and I'm on, you know, I think I'm on a bad spot along that spectrum. And I find that out. And then all of a sudden I go to the opposite extreme. Mm. But then I find out that's not good either. And I spend all this time trying to figure out, okay, how do I get in the optimal zone? And Kali's observation was there is no optimal zone. What you need to do is add other traits to your, your field of vision. And so, you know, one would be flexibility, right? To say, okay, right. it's not inherently good to be a taker. It's not inherently good to be a giver either. There are situations where each might be appropriate and I need to be more, you know, more judicious about deciding which one is right. In this world, I would say one of the mistakes that, that we make that, that I made in the early days of my research is I thought we were dealing with one continuum where takers on one end were selfish, givers on the other end were generous. But when I measured independently, I surveyed thousands and thousands of people and, and gave them a series of questions about how motivated they were to help others and then how motivated they were to achieve their own goals. And also then got their, their colleagues to rate them. So we had really nice 360 data. I found that, that self-concern and other concern were completely orthogonal. So how mm-hmm. much you care about other people and how, how much you care about your, yourself are uncorrelated. And so then... So let's just linger on that. Yeah, so how is that possible given that in so many situations there's a zero-sum contest between the two? So I think the, the key is that in a given situation, right, you often will face a trade-off. Mm. But if you aggregate all the situations across your life, you can often find ways that, that it's not zero-sum, right? So this is one of the reasons right, people yeah. love relationships as opposed to transactions is, yeah, oh, I can, yeah. you know, I can help you and it feels like maybe it cost me something in this moment. But over time, there's a chance that we both benefit from the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I was taking a narrow view of that because as I've often said, there's a place where selflessness and selfishness, wise selfishness coincide because you, you realize that you yeah. want to be surrounded by happy people. You want good relationships. Love is one of your primary values. And then all boats rise with that tide. That's the goal. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's been studied a lot in negotiations. So there's a meta-analysis that Karsten DeDrew led of every study that's ever been done of going into a negotiation, what are your motivations? And then how well do you do relative to your counterpart? Mm. And the overall finding is that the best negotiators are high in concern for their, themselves and high in concern for others simultaneously. And what that allows them to do is, is immediately figure out, okay, what does the person across the table from me need? And how do I help them get that? But then also make sure I get what I needed out of this interaction too. It's very different. If you're negotiating with someone and you get what you want clearly at their expense, right? They feel burned. Yeah. You're sabotaging any future relationship there. Done. So, yeah. Yeah, it's over. And there was, a, there was one of my favorite studies of negotiators actually measured their cognitive ability. So they took an IQ test. Hmm before negotiating. And then the question was, do smarter negotiators do better? And the answer was no, that the smarter you were, the better your counterpart did in the negotiation. And some of that might be because more intelligent people are more likely to take the long view and say, look, you know, yeah, I might, you know, quote unquote, lose this negotiation today, but that's not ultimately the only test of, of, you know, whether we built a good relationship or whether there's a way we could help each other in the future. But also, the smarter you were, the more able you were to identify ways of benefiting the other person that cost you nothing. 
Right. And I think this is one of the, the kind of basic mistakes people make is they think, oh, well, every act of generosity has to be at a personal expense. I'm like, no, that's altruism. I don't think anyone should be altruistic because it's not sustainable. I think what we should do is say, let's look for ways of helping others that don't require us to sacrifice ourselves. And we can all do that. Well, yeah, you can sacrifice one thing, let's say time, but to your mutual advantage. Yeah. So, Although there's one case, did you write an op-ed about not responding to emails? Do I have that correct? I wrote an op-ed yeah, okay. about why people should be responsive to reasonable emails. You must have gotten some pain for that. I did. So, yeah. I, I responded to all of them. Yeah, okay. Well, you can <laughs> respond to me now. So, so this is where I think I disagree because so now I'm in a position. So I once woke up with 50,000 unread emails oh, in my geez. inbox, right? So I had to declare email bankruptcy, obviously. Understood. And, and but I, I still get a lot of cold emails and I actually don't feel I, I so your argument just state your case. What 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 point did you make in that op-ed? I, I don't know. think you have to answer cold emails, by the way. Oh, you don't. Okay. No. And I That's I think how I read your op-ed that that if someone is if someone is writing you a reasonable cold email, it is of necessity rude to not respond to it. Definitely don't feel that way. Oh, okay. I think and I by the way, I think this is a this is a whole different animal for public figures, right? Or people right. who are visible to the point that you could even get 50,000 emails. Right. I think, but my, my general case is that email has evolved to be as essential to communication as a face-to-face interaction or a phone call. And if somebody walked by you in the hallway and said hello, you wouldn't just snub them, right? Yeah. You, you'd, you'd respond to them. And if somebody left you a voicemail, you'd, most people call them back. And I think some people have evolved this idea that, well, email is different. And if somebody writes me a message, I don't have to respond to it. And if that's the norm in your workplace, fine. If that's the norm in your field, totally okay. The problem is that because so much communication is being done on email today, it's mostly taken as a sign either that you're not conscientious, mm-hmm. which of all the personality traits in the big five is the best predictor of job performance. And so if you're judged as somebody who's disorganized and unreliable, that's generally not good for your career, right? Right. And then also it's, it sends a signal that you don't care, right? That the, the person who took the time to write you just doesn't matter to you. And neither of those signals you wouldn't want to send either of them, right? If, if you have a job. Right. You have the luxury of not having a job. Yes. <laughs> so you're, you're probably protected from all this. I, I've worked very hard not to have a job. Uh, and it served you well. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think that it's fine to, to exercise judgment on any individual email that comes in. I think if, if somebody has a habit of just not responding, they're taking a risk in, you know, in a digital age. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that what I mean is you should have a hierarchy, right? Of, of okay, so in my world, I'm responsive to family first. Students second, colleagues third, everyone else fourth. And, right. you know, that, that, makes, that makes it really easy, right? The, the everyone else category is going to fall by the wayside if I don't, you know, if I haven't gotten through responding to the other groups. Yeah, well, th- this opens the larger topic of, of saying no. And the more, the more things are going well, the more you actually need to say no to triage Definitely. You know, the, the, the various opportunities. And what I experienced with emails, that it just... It takes, there's enough of it that if I were going to be scrupulous about saying no in the most conscientious way, yeah. that w- I, there'd be no time for anything else. I mean, it just takes too long to say no to some of these emails. So that's, so if, you, <laughs> if you've sent me an email and you did not get a reply, that this explains what happened. <laughs> so, but how do you think about saying no and, and triaging with respect yeah. to all, so, the, all the demands on your time? I think when I first got into this field, I thought, I, I confused being a giver with saying yes. And... The, the whole point of, you know, choosing t- a set of values where you say, look, I want to be someone who contributes to the lives of others. 
and I enjoy being helpful and I'm happy to do it without strings attached, is you get to choose where you want to have your impact. And so you shouldn't be a slave to other people's priorities, right? At the same time, I'm not of the belief that when you, when you get an email or a request, that's always somebody else's priorities being dumped on you, right? I don't right. know about you, but my inbox is also the place where I get really helpful advice from my colleagues. And I can immediately find the answer to some esoteric question where I'm looking for a data point about it. Right. And so I feel like, you know, in a, in a cosmic matching sense, right? If I ignore email, then, uh, then probably I'm not going to end up getting very helpful responses. But I think that, that saying no is a critical skill for anybody who wants to be generous or anybody who wants, wants to get a lot done. And the way I've come to think about it is you ought to have a set of priorities around who you help, when you help, and how you help. So the who is easy, right? I give you my list of, of students coming before colleagues. And mm -hmm. that means that if I have a choice in a given day between a fellow professor who wants my feedback on a paper and a student who's looking for some career advice, I'm going to choose the student. And that means I'm comfortable with the student feeling I'm more generous than, than my colleague. Because right. I didn't become a professor to try to be helpful to other professors. I think they'll be okay. Also, if somebody, you know, if somebody has a history or a reputation of selfish behavior and you know, they've kind of proven themselves to be more of a taker, I'd want you to shift into matcher mode. And say, look, I'm not going to reward that behavior. I'm not going to reinforce it. I, I'm going to either not help them or I'm going to make sure that they're paying it back or paying it forward. And then the, the when is, is basically about saying, look, I've got a blackout time to get my own stuff done. And too often there's a, there's a temptation, I think, for a lot of people who like to be helpful to prioritize other people's needs ahead of their own. And then they're constantly falling behind on finishing their own work. Yeah. And then the how to me is the most fun is just to be clear and proactive about saying, look, there are certain ways of helping others that I enjoy and that I'm, I'm uniquely good at. And so I'm going to focus on those. And, you know, for me, that's I love sharing knowledge about work in psychology. My favorite cold emails to get are, have you ever seen a study fill in the blanks? I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, all these hours that I waste reading these completely trivial and tiny studies might come in handy for somebody else. And I really enjoy connecting people when it's mutually beneficial if there's, there's a way that they could actually help each other. And I feel like I live in this world where I bridge between lots of different fields. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a fun and easy thing to do. How, how do you connect them? Do you, do you send a cold email connecting them as a fait accompli, or do you ask whether they want to be connected to? Depends on the people. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I just sent one yesterday, actually. I hope I I'm not telegraphing too much, but you know what style <laughs> I, I would prefer. <laughs> of course. But so, yes, I would say I generally prefer the double opt-in. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, there's a person where I know, look, like they would be insane not to want to make right. this connection. Yeah. And so I'll just make it. So I, I've, I've done that. So I always default to the double opt in. But on a few occasions where I haven't, where I've just thrown two people together, I have literally said that you would be insane not to want yeah. to know each other. Yeah. And that, like, those are easy to predict. So I, yeah. I had an example of this last year. I was going to, uh, to tape a live podcast episode with Malcolm Gladwell. And we're sitting in the green room beforehand. And he's like, I'm doing this episode of uh, my podcast on um, why you should pull your goalie. And I really want to talk to Sam Harris, but I can't find anyone who knows him. Right. And I'm like, wait, I, I'm sure you know lots of people who know him, but I just met Sam. Like, I think it was a week after we met. Right. And uh, I, I didn't ask you if you wanted to meet him, but I assume like right. in general, you're probably happy to talk yeah, to yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, that was fine. But I apologize. Yeah. Although I landed, he, that connection landed me in the weirdest episode <laughs> of a podcast. Because it was, I don't know if you heard that with the I subsequent did. interview, but it was just, he was interviewing me about home invasions. And, it was uh, fascinating. I, okay, it My was, wife and I probably had a two-hour debate about it afterward. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, but... Uh, anyway, but yeah, topic, I, yeah, I think that it's, it's reasonable to, to assume that if, if there's one person who can help the other, the receiver would be happy to receive that connection. Right.
to change topics here. What do we know about creativity at this point? I think we know a lot about how to thwart it. I think we know how to undermine it as parents and teachers. I think we know how to stifle it at work. And I think most of what I know about how to unleash it is basically getting the obstacles out of the way. Hmm. So you want to talk about kids, adults, both? Yeah, let's, let's talk about both. And, and well, well, let's focus on creativity, but I actually would like to know how your just understanding of psychology may or may not have affected your parenting. Because that's, oh, that's, it's, gosh. I'm amazed at how little science seeps through into one's daily life. In, I mean, I, I, this is not, you know, I haven't focused on developmental psychology or um, any of this, the, the relevant fields narrowly, but I just know from talking to people like Paul Bloom or people who are closer to those data, yeah. it's amazing how little it, it constrains or uh, inspires our, our parenting. I, I mean, think it's are, one of the most irresponsible apes. things we do as a society. Mm -hmm is, I mean, we, we don't educate parents in the most basic knowledge about developmental psychology. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of torn on that because on the one hand, I've, you know, just as a casual consumer of, of that literature, not somebody who's ever really contributed to it, I've learned a lot from it. On the other hand, I never wanted to be one of those psychologists who screwed up our kids, which I feel like is, yeah. you know, is kind of the norm. But also, I've, I've been pretty persuaded by the, the wealth of evidence on behavioral genetics that says a lot of what we think are parenting effects you did are actually already. shared genes, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, you know, and that's why I say I think it's, it's easy to, to undermine a kid, right? So, you know, not, not being supportive, not, you know, not showing unconditional love, you know, really easy to damage a child, right? We, we have decades of evidence on the, you would know this as a neuroscientist, right, on, on how much harm you can do by depriving children, by exposing them to chronic stress, abuse, poverty, et cetera. But I think if you take out all the bad things that happen to kids, I'm not sure how much upside there is around trying to be the world's best parent, right? Or trying to get it perfect as opposed to just saying, look, we're all going to make mistakes no matter how hard we try at it. But I guess there are a few things that I, I think we ought to be aware of as parents. I think the biggest thing I've learned as a parent actually is that a big part of being creative is, uh, is building resilience. Because I think, you know, part of having ideas that are novel is it requires you to face rejection. It makes you feel like you're alone, right? As a, as a nonconformist who's maybe not fitting in. And there's some evidence that the, the most creative kid in a classroom is the least likely to be the teacher's pet. Because, hmm. you know, creative kids are annoying in yeah. class, right? I, yeah. I know even as a teacher of, a, of, of, you know, college students and MBA students that, you know, the ones who are wildly creative, like, they're not quite sticking with the, the lesson plan. And they often want to take the conversation and, you know, onto a tangent. And then I worry that the rest of the class is going to miss out on, you know, the, the, the key concepts we were going to cover. So when I, when I think about all of that, I think that if you are going to be creative, one of the skills that you need early on is you need to be comfortable with disapproval socially. Mm. And I think that one of the ways you, uh, you foster that comfort is you encourage kids to, to think for themselves and recognize that they don't always need the approval of a parental figure in order to, you know, to feel okay. And there, uh, there are some interesting ways to do this, but one, one that I've applied with our kids is I read all this research showing that one of the beliefs that kids need in order to be resilient is they need to feel that they matter. And mattering in, in sociology has three components. One is that other people notice me. Two is they care about me. And three is they rely on me. And I think most parents are pretty good at the first two. Mm -hmm. But we miss out on the third, which is I matter when I feel that other people are counting on me. And I think too many parents let kids be helpless, right? There's mm -hmm. all this discussion now about snowplow parenting where we clear the path for kids as opposed to preparing kids for the path. Right. And so I thought, okay, we've, we're supposed to show our kids that, that we are willing to rely on them. So one of the things I'll do is when I'm nervous before uh, a big speech, let's say, 
I'll actually go to our kids and ask them for advice on how to handle that. Oh, interesting. And, and your it's so remind me, your kids are what ages? So they're 11, 8, and 5. So very young to to imagine they could actually contribute to your well-being in that way. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't have high hopes for our five-year-old's yeah. advice on that no, all the no, time. But No, yeah. I know, but just the, the, the fact that you would kind of model that that uh, reciprocity is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't want them to feel like I'm, you know, I'm needing it, right? right. But I, I want to show them that I value their input. Right, it's a team effort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the, the great thing about that is, one, I've signaled that I have confidence in their ability to think through, you know, how, do, how would I handle a stressful situation? Mm -hmm. Two, I then get to watch them practice their own problem solving. And so instead of, so a couple, the first time I did this actually uh, was before I, I gave my first talk at TED. And, you know, I talked to our, our oldest and she gave me a bunch of like pretty good tips mm -hmm. and, you know, said, hey, you know, you should, you should think about what, you know, why you're excited to give this speech and who, you know, in the audience it could help. And then a few weeks later, of course, she's in a school play and she's nervous. And instead of me giving her advice, she gets to think for herself and know that she already has some ideas about how to handle that situation. And I, th I think we could, we could give kids those opportunities more often, right? To, instead of telling them how to solve a problem, we ought to give them opportunities to think through the problem themselves and even show them that we're willing to consider their advice. Yeah, that, well, that's great. So where, how does unconditional love mesh with this concept of grit that we have been hearing more <laughs> about? Well, it's interesting because Angela Duckworth uh, is a close colleague of mine who put mm. grit on the map in her research. Yeah. And she has found the exact same thing for parenting that I've found for work, which is there's another, there's a two by two in the, in the work world. I've talked about this in terms of, you know, giving and taking and then how agreeable and disagreeable people are, which just as a quick aside, I used to assume that being agreeable meant you were going to be a giver because, you know, if you're nice and friendly and warm, you're going to be helpful. But the data I've gathered suggests that those are independent and that agreeableness is about on the surface, you know, how pleasant is it to interact with you? Mm-hmm. Whereas giving and taking are, are what, are the, what are those real intentions deep down? And so when you draw the two by two, I've found that often the best leaders are the disagreeable givers who dole out more tough love, who challenge you because they care about you. And Angela has a two by two of parenting that's almost identical, which is how supportive are you? That's your unconditional love factor. Mm -hmm. And then the other axis is how demanding are you? And the, the goal is to be in the high, high cell and say, I am both supportive and demanding. Mm. Now, to your point earlier about situations, it's really hard to be both in one sentence, right? Yeah. But I think over time, grit comes from your kids feeling like you believe in their potential, you care about them and their well-being and success, but also you have really high expectations and standards for them. And I don't think those, those things have to be at odds. I think I would like another axis there, which is- We can't see in three dimensions. It's yeah, too complicated. Yeah. What's Build the third? This, yeah. Which is honesty. I mean, maybe, maybe it collapses down to one of the other two, but people- often think that in order to truly be supportive, there are some circumstances where you have to lie to people and you, know, you have to tell a white lie in order to not give them a truth which they might find disappointing or, or dispiriting. But you know, I've been on this hobby horse for more than a decade now, and I find that, and, it's, and I find this as a parent as well, like, it's an immense reservoir of confidence interpersonally for the other person to know that you will never lie to them, yeah. right? Because then, then when you're when you're praising them, they know you're not bullshitting them. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think it, it's not something that is explicit in in many people's thinking here. It's just like like if, if you're just trying to be supportive and demanding by turns to say, to, to say to take those two variables, 
it's easy to see how the level of honesty may just accidentally fall wherever it falls. That's one of the reasons that I like the disagreeable giver idea, mm-hmm. the language at least, better than demanding and supportive. Right. Because I think at part of the heart of being disagreeable is saying, look, I'm going to tell you the truth that you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. Right. And you know, as somebody who, by personality, I, you could probably tell, I skew much more in the agreeable direction. Mm. And I think one of my Achilles heels in my career has been wanting to be liked. One of the things I've tried to learn over time is to say, look, yes, in the short run, it is more painful to, you know, to tell people a hard truth than it is to tell them what seems like a kind lie. But in the long run, that's not creating a foundation where people trust me and where I have integrity. And so I have an aspiration to be more disagreeable and sometimes have overcorrected on that. But mm. I think that, yeah, I mean, there are, this, this goes back to the idea that you want a challenge network, not, not just a support network, right? People who are willing to pick your arguments apart because they, they think it's important for you to get it right. Yeah. Actually, there's one more point on creativity that I think you made in one of your books. I think it's been made elsewhere, too. But one of the false assumptions about creativity is that there's just a, a higher quality of work coming out of creative people, whereas it seems yeah. like it's, and correct me if, I, if the research hasn't backed this up, but it seems like there's just a in most cases, it's just a higher volume of work, and then yeah. it's just more at the, the far end of the distribution to choose from. Yeah. The, the, the dominant finding in the creative, creativity literature is the more creative you are, the more bad ideas you have. Mm. And that's just because you generate more ideas. And I think the, Dean Simonson, who's a, a very prolific psychologist who studied this pretty extensively throughout history, is Dean, Dean would say that you want to think about creativity as fundamentally Darwinian that you have what's essentially blind variation, that as a creator, you are too close to the idea and have too little access to you know, the, the taste of your audience or the needs of your field to really judge whether your ideas are any good. And so you have to generate enough blind variation that some of those ideas will be selectively retained. So uh, you look at classical composers, for example, and there's good evidence that one of the distinguishing factors that made Beethoven and Bach and Mozart better than their peers is they generated often not just twice as much work, but 10 times as much work as most other composers. Mm. And what that means is their, their mean composition is not considered greater than you know, lesser musicians, but their peak is higher because they, they had more shots on goal, essentially. Yeah. You can also see this within people's careers, though. So Simonson did an analysis of Thomas Edison's innovations over time, and he found that the periods in which he generated the most patents were also the periods in which he had the best shot at, at a truly influential patent. And that, you know, d- during the same window where he, um, he kind of did the work sort of pioneering the light bulb, whether or not he actually invented it at all, he was also trying to create a um, fruit preservation technique that totally backfired, maybe even caused fruit to, to rot faster. Mm-hmm. Not sure. <laughs> he created um, a technique for mining iron ore that didn't work invented a doll so creepy that it scared, uh, scared adults and kids. Right. <laughs> and so you look at that and it's like, okay, how is that the same yeah. inventor? Yeah. But Shakespeare, same thing. You know, same period he was working on some of his greatest hits, like it goes Macbeth. It was, was also the time when he wrote Timon of Athens, mm. which nobody thought was any good. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think there's, there's a rule that says you have to generate a sufficient quantity to stumble onto some quality. There, there was an anecdote you tell in Give and Take that I hadn't heard, I was amazed that I hadn't heard it upon reading it, but this goes to the the consequences of being a taker or an apparent taker, even in great success. And just the, the story of Jonas Salk, oh, uh, 
and his press conference. Maybe you can tell that because I, I genuinely hadn't heard it and am amazed given how famous he was and how much he, he appears to have contributed <laughs> to our well-being. It's just a, it's an amazing story. I, I was shocked when I stumbled onto the story. I had no idea because Jonas Selleck's a hero, right? Yeah. When, you, when you think about givers, he's, when I think societally, right, great people throughout the past century, he, he was pretty close to the top of my list. And I actually started looking into him because I was interested in writing a chapter about sharing credit. And I thought, oh, a great scientist who did so much good is probably an exemplar. And when I, when I look for stories when I write, I always start with the science and then say, let me find a good example to illustrate it. And so, you know, I had a bunch of studies about credit that I wanted to, to bring to life. And I went to Salk. And I read this really surprising article by a historian that said, you know, Salk was, uh, was asked why he didn't patent uh, his vaccine when he, you know, when he first generated it. And he said, well, you can't patent the sun. You wouldn't patent the sun. Mm. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a public good. It turns out <laughs> it's a lie. Mm. It turns out his vaccine wasn't patentable. And so he was trying to paint himself as this very altruistic guy when in fact the due diligence had been done and uh, a patent was not obtainable because I think the work was not sufficiently novel. Right. So, so that was the first layer. And then I thought, okay, I've got to learn more about this guy. He's obviously a more complicated figure than he seems to be. And uh, I read a whole book. Uh, it, was a biography of, uh, it was a biography of polio, really, but it was sort of a biography of Salk in a way. And uh, I learned a couple of things. One was that he, he would always refuse press interviews because, you know, he was too busy. And then he would allow himself to be cajoled into saying yes. And then, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing all this important work, but I would, you know, okay, this is, if you really need me, I can talk to you. Again, trying to paint this picture of himself as, as somebody who, who had these very noble ideals. And then the kicker was he had a core lab of people who really did essential work. Without them, there would be, I think, no Salk vaccine. And he snubbed them. He refused to give them credit for the work that they did. When they made the big announcement, they finally had the vaccine available. He didn't mention any of their names and basically fractured his relationship with all these people. Yeah, they the left in tears from that press conference. Yeah, yeah, actually crying. Yeah. And these were people who toiled away trying to work on a problem that was so critical to humanity and just wanted their boss to say their name. Mm. And he wouldn't do it. And it was apparently really important to him that he was the, the sole inventor. And, you know, again, not even an invention per se. but. There's this whole debate about whether he then was blackballed from the National Academy of Sciences because of that or because his work was too applied and people didn't see it as, as making a basic contribution to knowledge. But I think that we see this a lot. I think there are a lot of people who work very hard to craft images as givers. And if you look at the way that they, they dole out blame and take credit, it doesn't really follow the, the value system that, that you would hope for. All right. Well, another lateral move to uh, the topic of meditation, which uh, <laughs> oh, no. I, I warned you about. So you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, which was widely considered a broadside against the, the scientific consensus or, 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 Is the, that how it was viewed? or the rumors thereof about the utility of mindfulness. And I don't think that's true. No? It's interesting that you say that. Yeah. I, well, so why, why do you think it was perceived that way? Because well, it wasn't my intent. I, think, I don't think we have to get into the weeds of that. It's just it's more... I think what would inform this conversation more is that I heard you do a podcast with my friend Dan Harris, who, who's got the 10% Happier podcast and meditation app by that name. And uh, Dan is, a, is just a, you know, a hardcore evangelist for meditation now because he's, he's found it so useful in his life. So you had a conversation there where your, your basic skepticism about 
just the whole project, whether there's a there there came out. But it was in your op-ed as well. I mean, you're, basically, the you and I are going to agree here that the science in support of the, the benefits of meditation is thinner than many people would acknowledge who are yeah. relying on it, right? It's being hyped. Yeah, and I think any, any serious scientist will tell you that. I guess the, the better way to put that is that there's a range of kind of quality of science attesting to the benefits of meditation. And some of it is obviously thin. Some of it's obviously interesting, but all of it's preliminary, right? And so it's not, I mean, I would put Richie Davidson in the, on the side of obviously interesting, but still preliminary. Yeah. But so to come in at the, the ground floor here, I think you were talking about with Dan having met so many people who were whose lives they th- you know they imagined had been changed by the practice of meditation, and the the evangelism was starting to rub you the wrong way, such that you you uh, you know your your look at the at the data coupled to the personal enthusiasms of annoying people caused <laughs> you to say, all right, enough is enough. Well, you know, I'm not interested in this. So how would it, I don't know when you recorded this this conversation with Dan. It must yeah. be about a year ago. It was but, in the fall, I think. Okay, actually. Okay. So uh, yeah, give me your give me your hot take on meditation, and then and then uh, I will try to perform an exorcism on you. Oh well, I apparently I'm uh, I didn't know I was possessed. This yeah. is interesting. You're, you're, you're possessed by doubt. <laughs> I think we should all be possessed yeah, by doubt yeah. more often. Isn't isn't that a precept of science? Uh, up to a point, even without having an experience in it, I think there are things that you could understand conceptually that would make it seem obviously of greater interest that whether or not you, it was it was something that you wanted to act on. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll get there. I just want to get your up to the minute take, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll say a few things that, yeah. that Dan didn't say in his in his exchange with you. I believe that. I think I think it could be more interesting to me than I let on. I think I just, I have, I have a natural skepticism of anything that has evangelism behind it. And I think my responsibility as a social scientist is to look at the evidence and, you know, ask in a, in a balanced way, what do we really know? And I actually started reading mindfulness research in 1999 before the, you know, the McMindfulness yeah, movement yeah. took off. And one of the first observations that I thought was interesting is you can become mindful without meditating. You can at least create a state of mindfulness by teaching people to think in conditionals rather than, rather than absolutes. And you could also get there by, by teaching people to, to just notice the things in their environment, right? So I felt like my, my early assumption was we ought to decouple meditation from mindfulness because there are many ways of cultivating and focusing attention on the present. There are many ways of learning to be non-judgmental, and meditation might be one path there, mm. but like any complex system that's governed by equifinality, right, that there are multiple routes to the same end, maybe there are other ways you could get there too. So that's kind of where I came in. And then as all these people started saying, well, I mean, I, I felt like I was, I was getting judged. <laughs> like, what, so right. what kind of meditation do you do? I don't. Wait, I'm sorry. What? Are you, you? How could you not? What's wrong with you? And you know that that only happens so many times where you think like, huh? I didn't, I didn't even know that like, that was a virtue to meditate. I just thought it was a practice that some people like, in the same way that you know some people prefer to go running and others prefer to play basketball, right? I guess. Well, you, you, I think what's starting to happen for people is there's this expectation that its benefits have been so obviously demonstrated that it's it is analogous to physical exercise, yeah. where it's like. Wait a minute! You don't exercise at all. You, you don't run. You don't bike. You don't yeah. lift weights. That begins to seem pathological, and and I would imagine the circles in which you run. You yeah. know, if you're going to you know conferences like TED or wherever, you're surrounded by people who would assume that it's the benefits are so clear cut that yeah. you're taking some kind of stand for not being interested. At yeah. All. No. Which which obviously was not my intent. I just right. I think 
it's never, I mean, I've, I've tried it. It's never, I probably not been taught a way to do it that worked for me. It had never, um, it never just felt like something that was, that I wanted to make time for. And all the, my, my big beef was that aside from the fact that I think, you know, the claims far outstrip the science, you know, how many randomized controlled trials do we really have looking at isolating meditation from all of the different components of activity that you might be able to get without meditating? And then how objective are the outcomes and how, how consistently do they work? Is it effective for most of the people in most of the situations? I feel like there are a lot of open questions there, you know, but I, I, don't, I don't disbelieve that. I, I think it's probably helpful for most people in most situations if the goal is to reduce stress or to cultivate mindfulness. I just, I, I looked at that and I said, okay, but we see the same effects on stress reduction of exercise. We see very similar effects on right. mindfulness of some of these other activities that I mentioned. And so my feeling had been, I, I like to use my time productively. I'm not someone who's good at quote unquote doing nothing. And I realize that meditation is not doing nothing. But when I compare it to reading, where I feel like I get some of the same benefits, I'd rather read. Mm. When I compare it to exercise, I'd rather spend you know, an extra 10 minutes or one hour a day doing more exercise than I would meditating. And by the way, I can, you know, I can think and reflect while I do that. And so I was just reacting to the, the, the force, the, the feeling of being forced to do this one activity that I think the science suggests it's probably helpful, but I don't, I don't feel like I need it. And the funny part to me was when I would ask people, well, why, why, are, you so, why are you so evangelistic about it? And the, the common answer was, well, you know, I, it helps me quiet my monkey mind and all the chatter. I've never heard voices in my head. I, I don't I don't know what a monkey mind is. I don't think I if you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.